This is Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. The Hip Hop Caucus Hurricane Ida Relief Fund is raising funds to directly benefit family and individuals impacted by Hurricane Ida and who are in need of urgent assistance throughout the Gulf Coast. Every dollar raised will go directly to families and people as cash for things they most need right now, whether it be food, gas, lodging, medicine, or other emergency expenses. Hip Hop Caucus will be matching the first $10,000 donated. Please donate immediately. Go to hiphopcaucus.org or text IDA to 66539. Again, go to hiphopcaucus.org or text IDA to 66539. Now let's get ready for the coolest show. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know it's the hip hop calls. Well, I am excited for this uh, episode for so many reasons because this is actually a dear friend and uh, an amazing individual. Um, Congresswoman, former Congresswoman Donna Edwards. Donna, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's so good to be with you, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. Before I say anything else, and before we get started, let me just first say to you um, that I couldn't start this episode without saying that my mom is a fan. <laughs> I'm sure you know that. For the folks who don't know, my mom lived in uh, Donna's district when she was a congressman. And she, listen, she is, she, there could be nobody else besides Donna Edwards who could be my mom's congressperson because that's it. <laughs> and she tells me, I send Donna scriptures and I I still talk to her. And, and, and man, I, you know, we don't talk bad about nobody, but man, I just want to say that she, if she could put Donna back in Congress by her own vote, Listen, you be there tomorrow. <laughs> oh, that's so wonderful. And she does. She sends me wonderful messages that really lift me up. So <laughs> I I appreciate that. And I'm like, oh, yes, there she is. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So for folks who don't know, who is Donna Edwards? Um, you know, without doing the long story, I think the thing that people mostly don't know about me, I grew up in a military family. And so, you know, sometimes when you grow up in a military I didn't know family, that actually. people always ask you, where are you from? And yeah. I always had the most difficult time answering that question because I literally lived in every single region of the country. Um, and it has given that foundation has given me a perspective um, about the country, about, you know, people who live in different regions and living around people who are, you know, different from our family. And I think that that really frames how I've come to think about myself as an adult mm -hmm. as well, you know, taking in uh, people at face value and um, and understanding that we are really a nation of, you know, just a whole, you know, it's like a mutt nation um, with a whole bunch of people thrown into this, you know, one region. And we all have to figure out a way um, to, you know, to come together. And so my background as a military brat, my dad was in the Air Force for 30 years. And so all of my um, growing up years, we, um, you know, went from one duty station to the next. I wow. attended 14 schools during the course of my wow. uh, school years. Um, and, you know, for some people that would be, you know, kind of a challenge for me. It was just fun. You know, I have and I know now today I have friends who are all over the world 
because of the way I grew up. And I also, um, I lived in the Philippines during my formative middle school years. Um, and so it, it, that probably tells people more than anything mm. about who I am and about how that vantage point has shaped the way I think about the country and the world. That's a lot. And I don't know if you knew this fun fact that I was, I was an officer in the Air Force. I didn't know if you knew that. I was in the chaplain corps. I did not know that. See that? It, well, my goodness. <laughs> so I understand your world very much so. Like, I, I get it. I mean, I was the chaplain to tell folks it's okay to be moving so much. <laughs> God, God right. going to make a way. It's going to be right. okay. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's I, a, I think I was baptized by somebody in the chaplain corps when I lived in the Philippines, as a matter yeah. of fact. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Wow. See, you never know. That's why folks tuning in, this is why you got to check out the show. You get all these fun <laughs> facts. You are someone who is very deeply engaged in democracy. And so as someone who is an American, as someone who was a former congressperson, knowing where we are with democracy right now, are you hopeful? I'm hopeful, but it's troubling. Um, you know, I'm hopeful because I do think that we have a resilient system and the mechanisms in place to push back on people who are challenging democracy, but it also requires an engaged citizenry. And sometimes I worry that um, even after this, uh, this last election and the insurrection on January 6th and everything that has taken place in between in terms of um, the voter suppression laws that are being proposed and uh, passed in the states, that we become complacent. And I think when a citizenry becomes complacent, that it opens the door to autocracy. So our system can push back against that, but we have to be engaged to do it. Hmm. I know you are the epitome of what we would call a progressive Democrat um, in that regard. And so you are unique in many ways. So let's kind of go to some of the policies in that. Um, and unique because as a political figure, you know, your experiences are unique. Um, so help our audience understand as the world has its eyes on climate and infrastructure, what exactly is happening at the federal level? And what does it mean for those of us in the states, in our local communities, or on the streets? You know, I think, I believe Congress is going to pass a pretty substantial uh, infrastructure bill. I think if I had had my way, it would probably be double the $570 billion that it is because the need is so great. Um, my concern is not that the two houses are eventually going to come together on, a, on the hard infrastructure, the roads, the bridges, the you know, water systems, um, broadband, all of those things. My concern is where that money goes once the Congress has had its say and the president has signed off on it. And that we have to be very vigilant to make sure that it goes to communities that are in need. Hmm. Um, there are particularly black and brown and poor communities that are suffering the greatest from the impacts of climate change. And those are the communities that need to get the resources that are there for resiliency. Those are the communities where we really need to make sure that, um, you know, the worst uh, climate offenders um, don't get to continue to abuse communities with, you know, dump sites and, um, uh, you know, oil wells that are <laughs> seeping into the, you know, into the shorelines and the water systems. So I'm not, I am confident that a bill is going to pass. And I also think it has to be coupled, it must be coupled with what's described as the budget reconciliation, which is really just a fancy term for figuring out a spending mechanism 
that allows the Congress to do a whole bunch of other things. And those are the things that are described as the care economy, taking care of people, making sure that we make the investments in uh, in climate change, not just on the hard infrastructure side, but um, on things like, you know, um, making sure that we have um, attention to how we're looking at energy and energy consumption um, and a wide range of energy sources other than the fossil fuel sources. So where that money gets spent, to me, is the greater part of the deal. And that is why uh, the importance of passing legislation, that's kind of one piece of it. But we have to be vigilant as citizens in our communities, in our states, when those monies begin to trickle down, that they're actually going hmm. to communities of need. Let me ask you this question. I want to I bring you into a conversation that I'm having with a lot of young people um, right now. So I want to kind of bring you into our little, uh, either our Zoom chats or if we can get together, um, you know, our little coffee table conversations. I want to I bring you into this conversation. The, particularly, and this is mostly with um, young people of color, so black, brown, and, and indigenous people, young people in this situation. There's a high level of frustration with the political process. There is, they understand, so you know, that they know the importance of policy. They understand that either you shape policy or policy shapes you. They understand that. But they also understand for many of them, they are living in a moment where this moment for them is not just about equality, but also about existence. And frankly, they feel like they voted people into office. They feel like regardless of whatever it is, they see um, from, the, from, the, uh, from the federal level, from the state level, on the sea level, definitely within the in, in the branches of our government right now, they feel, maybe that's so much from the, the, uh, the litigation and that aspect uh, from the court. Even though from the courts, they still make, they understand what that is. But they see it right now. They see what they feel is folks who are politicians not putting it all on the line. And they, they're out there on the streets for the movement for black lives. They're out there on the streets fighting for clean air and clean water. They're out there on the streets fighting for liberation. And so they feel like these politicians are just in there getting a check. I just, can you speak to that? Because there is a high level of frustration that folks just too comfortable in these positions of power. Well, I have to tell you, I feel the same frustration, to be quite honest with you. I mean, we, uh, we had the greatest turnout um, that we've had in generations for the election in 2020. Um, people did what they needed to do in 2018 to turn um, the the um, House of Representatives, and then they did what they needed to do in 2020 for the presidency. And now, and I'll just speak in political terms, Democrats own the House, the White House, and the United States Senate. In my view, there is no excuse for not acting on things that make a difference in people's lives. I've been frustrated that, you know, there hasn't been an agreement on criminal justice reform, frustrated that there hasn't been an agreement on the For the People Act and the, all the things that, you know, really can make this democracy work. Um, and that we've had to, you know, piecemeal work on climate change, splitting it between a budget bill and, a, um, and an infrastructure bill because people don't want to, some people don't want to say the words climate change. So I share that frustration. And what I will say is that now is the time we are months away from 2022. Many of these elected officials are going to be up uh, for re-election. They need to be put on the line right now. And I say that, I mean, I would have been completely comfortable as a member of Congress if my constituents challenged me to do the right thing. And it's what always kept you describe me as a progressive. Part of what kept me that way is because I knew I had to do the right thing or my constituents would let me know 
at the ballot box. And I think, um, you know, that kind of uh, voice is really important. I look, for example, at what uh, Congresswoman Cori Bush mm-hmm. just did on the um, eviction moratorium. And frankly, had she and other advocates around the country not stood up and yelled and screamed about this, I think the White House would have enabled the Congress to go into recess and they would have they would have said, well, we'll deal with that when they get back after Labor Day. And because there was direct action, that made a huge difference. These um, members of um, member legislators from Texas and then others around the country joining them in Washington has kept voting rights at the top of the list. Hmm. Um, and I think that, that that, again, is another issue that would have been totally placed on the back burner. We wouldn't be hearing about it in the headlines had those Texas legislators not had the courage to come to Washington to abandon their, um, their legislature, to get out of there so that they could force um, the issue in the, in their state in the Congress, we would not be where we are now. I mean, and, and right now, I think the leadership in Congress and the president feel compelled to get something done on voting rights. And so, again, you know, I think I've always believed in the inside outside. You have to have allies inside who are kind of working the process and working the system, and it can be like making sausage. But the most important thing is to have allies on the outside pushing the buttons because, you know, as a former member of Congress, it does get kind of easy to just go about your day to day if you're not hearing from anybody on a particular issue. And so anybody who says that direct action doesn't work or, you know, that, um, you know, that calling members of Congress out, whether it's in ads or in their districts, doesn't work. They are totally wrong about that. Donna, let me, let's, let's, as you know, on this show, we, we keep it, we keep it real. We keep it 100. And so I, first of all, I agree with you that I am so grateful for those politicians who have, um, those from Texas, uh, who literally are doing in their aspect of civil disobedience and and fled the state to save democracy in that state. Um, I'm very grateful for Sister Cori Bush and what she did and took her lawn chair out there and said, I'm not, we're not going on vacation. Um, two things to that. Um, one, you know, how we got a Cori Bush was she took on the black political establishment. You did too as well, actually. You you actually ran when you were running against someone who was in these positions. And I know for a fact you got pushed back. I know for a fact she's getting pushed back. Um, let me just tell a little side note. Thank God for black women. <laughs> I just want to slide that in there. <laughs> but but it, there's something bigger than that because you both took on um, those who are part of the political apparatus. And I'm talking about the black political apparatus. And you both felt some pressure. What do you think she's going through now? Do you think, just give us a little bit behind the scenes now. You were there. So you know when they hear and they see Congressman Cory Bush on the steps and then the squad starts joining her, what is happening? Give folks a little bit behind the scenes. What is, what is, we know what it, what it, what it, what it, what it, what happened, but what is, what is, I don't think anybody is happy in that process? Or is everybody like, wow, we, we glad she did it. What, what's happening there on Capitol Hill when she does that? Well, you know, I'm glad that you raised that because I, you know, I would love to have a conversation with these, um, with these women, which I haven't been able to do um, during the course of the pandemic. But, you know, you have to, you have to have the confidence in yourself inside because the pushback is so strong um, to, you know, to be a conformist. 
and um, to just kind of go with the flow and allow certain leaders to step forward and the junior members to sit on the sidelines. And thank goodness for these women, um, a couple of men, but for these women to say, I'm not going to sit on the sideline. I'm not going to wait until there's some leadership call to do it. What they did is that they pressured the leadership. And look, I served in leadership as well. So I understand that. Um, But I think within the Black sort of political apparatus, there is a lot of pressure to conform um, and to defer. And I'm grateful that these women are setting a different generational tone and and plan of action uh, when it comes to raising issues of policy. Uh, They are, I, I think that, you know, when I look at the Black Caucus now, even from when I served, it is larger than it has ever been. But there is a significant generational divide um, and one that where the old guard leadership, I'll describe them and they're my friends and, you know, and all of that. But, um, you know, their time is passing. And these young leaders are not going to have the patience to just wait it out on the sidelines. And I'm grateful because otherwise there are a lot of things, a lot of issues that make a difference in people's lives that, you know, they can't afford to wait. I mean, if you're, you know, I mean, I was at a point at one time in my life raising my son on my own that uh, I almost lost my home. I know what it's like to have those notices. And so when I saw um, Representative Bush and others who joined her, I was grateful for them because I was that mom that they were fighting for. No, that that's powerful. And I know you would like that. And I would have been on the steps with her. Trust me. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> not. I know. And that's actually what you know, but that's that's the thing. And those who are in that camp joined her, right? right. And they were, and was happy to see folks on the other side. I was happy to see folks like Elizabeth Warren. And I know all who showed up didn't watch every bit of it. So I know a lot showed up, right, to support her. But there was a lot who did a lot of people who didn't show up, right? And I think that's the thing that people are talking about. Like they noticed who showed up, they noticed who didn't show up. And that's the fear. And back to your back to your point of these young people who are putting it all on the line this moment. They're just tired of seeing folks in these positions who ain't who ain't matching the moment. That's the thing they're done. Well, and they're taking them on. And, I, you know, look, I don't think every incumbent should get a challenger. And, you know, uh, because I think for the most part, that would be a waste of a huge amount of resources. But every once in a while. There should be opportunities to take on some of the, you know, the old guard. I'm not supportive of, you know, the idea of the, you know, I mean, there's this notion within the Democratic Party and the Republicans do it, too, of um, being very discouraging and even punitive um, when it comes to people within their own party taking on um, primary challenges. And I just don't agree with that. Um, I mean, look, I ran in a primary against a longtime Democratic uh, incumbent. I took him on. I took on the establishment of the party. I was one of the first who did that. And I think there have been a succession of people since then who have taken on that challenge. And, you know, their their voices coming into this process and into the political realm has made a huge difference. Mm. I mean, they are raising issues in a way that forces the leadership to hold on to it. You know, I mean, if you look at the both the budget reconciliation that's going to be about $3.5 million, uh, uh, trillion dollars, excuse me, and you look at the um, $570 billion infrastructure 
um, bipartisan infrastructure package, many of the aspects of those things, whether it's a child tax credit, uh, free community college, um, investment in, um, in housing, I mean, a whole set of investments that are progressive ideas. And those have made their way into these packages because of the leadership of the progressives in Congress. I asked you a question earlier about democracy, and I asked you if you were hopeful, and uh, thank you for that response. I'm actually that same question in regard to the climate crisis, because um, we have a lot, there's a lot going on, and you have been in this movement um, for quite some time. You've been in it as an activist, you've been in it as a donor, you've been in it obviously as a politician, been in it as a mom. <laughs> um, you've, been, you've been in this movement for quite some time. And so you've seen where we are now. You've, you, we've talked about this many years ago that we would be at this moment where we, would, we, where we would have droughts, wildfires, hurricanes. We, we discussed this. Now it's, it's becoming every day. Um, and as, as a part of this legislation that we're talking about, a key part of that is that we're hopeful that climate will be within the reconciliation process from the climate core to the uh, uh, clean energy standards and the like. But are you hopeful? I mean, just honestly, when you see what's going on and, and if you see if we're doing enough or not doing enough, are you, are you hopeful about that we're going to be able to deal with the, the, the climate crisis? And, and that's a hard, sometimes, and that's, and that's, I'm, I'm going to make sure to give you a caveat, just a, a little caveat to that. So I want you to, because are you, if not hopeful, are you, do you think that we're doing enough? I think we're late in the game, uh, quite honestly. I mean, every day there is another story that tells us that we are really behind the eight ball in the fight um, to save the save the planet um, and to save our communities. And as you describe, whether it's you know the droughts, the wildfires, the extreme storms that. Uh, that we're having. Um, just a couple of days ago, I read about the melting of the ice sheet uh, under uh, Greenland. Um, the, you know, nobody cares about this, but I, I went to Antarctica once during my time in Congress and saw the, um, you know, the Eskimos there. And I read a story just yesterday that they will be extinct in about another 30 years. Mm. Um, and that's because, you know, of the climate crisis. So there are things that impact, obviously, people and communities, but also, you know, the far reaches of our, of our planet. And I don't know if we're too late. I think that we, I think that the budget reconciliation, I am hopeful that, um, significant elements that you outline, whether it's the clean energy um, standard or um, investments in electric uh, vehicles and the infrastructure for that and whole range of things uh, will be in the budget reconciliation. I'm hopeful that that will happen. But I, um, I worry that we are very late to the game and whether we really have it in us to do the things, the hard things that it's going to take to reverse what we've done to this planet over these generations. And so I worry about that because um, it, it almost feels like it's difficult for us to catch up uh, from where we are right now. And, you know, I, you know, very concerned, like when you think about drought, sure, that impacts the farmers who are, you know, trying to make a living off of the land. But that means that communities, especially poor communities, and mostly black, brown, indigenous communities are going to be the big losers, because they already live in food deserts. And those deserts are going to grow. Because and the pricing of basic um, commodities, uh, we can already see that in the market. The pr 
prices are going up and up and up. And the reason is because there are shortages. Mm. Um, so uh, I think that this package is a really strong start, but we can't, you know, just sort of close our eyes and go, okay, we did that money. And so now it's done because we're going to have to come back again. Um, this crisis is that substantial and where we are in it. I mean, if we were if we were having this conversation when Jimmy Carter wanted to have the conversation, um, we'd be in a completely different place from where we are now. So we are at least, you know, 35, 40 years behind where we need to be in order to, um, you know, to handle this crisis and to reverse it. And so my question is, are we going to have the uh, the wherewithal uh, after this $3 trillion package to come back and say, we have to do even more um, if we want to continue to live on this planet and if we want it around for our children and grandchildren. You know, if you talk about that, um, it takes some, it'll, it'll take a movement to do that, right? We know how this works. To do that, it'll take a powerful, unified grassroots movement that will be able to work inside, outside strategy to make that happen. Um, I want to talk about that movement in this shortly, but I want to talk about environmental justice because obviously you went to school and uh, college in North Carolina. Um, and that's the, uh, almost like the birthplace of the environmental justice movement. Um, what are your thoughts for those who don't know? Um, what is environmental justice to you? And what are your thoughts on where we are now in regards to environmental justice, particularly with the Justice 40, executive order, and just where this administration is centering EJ in this, in, this, in this administration? Well, I have to say, I mean, the profile of environmental justice has been raised in this administration higher than it's ever been in any administration. Um, and, you know, but the question is um, how that plays out in terms of the policies that impact communities that are, you know, who have been long ignored, their environmental concerns have been, you know, sort of placed in the back burner. I remember when I was, um, you know, advocating in, in my community around uh, environmental issues that were affecting a substantially um, African-American community where a local school that's not a mile from where I am right now had, you know, a lot of mold in the school. The kids were suffering from asthma and other kinds of respiratory illnesses, but it was hard to get the environment, the majority environmental movement to call that an environmental issue. And so I fought really hard to, you know, to, get into the common culture, common language of the, the larger mainstream environmental movement, the idea that the concerns in black and brown and indigenous communities um, were environmental issues too. Uh, and as much as I love the polar bears and the Eskimos, I'm also really concerned about air pollution that, and and what's happening with our water and our groundwater in local communities and where that cement uh, processing plant is allowed to operate or the chicken processing that's putting, you know, a lot of garbage into the, um, into the rivers. And so um, those issues that really affect communities of color have to be part of the mainstream environmental movement. I was always a little concerned that when we when we said environmental justice, that that put us over into you know some box there that can only get pulled out when it was useful to the larger environmental movement. Hmm. And today, I think more issues of justice are. Um, part of the mainstream conversation around what needs to happen with the environment. I mean, environmental justice, for example, has been centered 
in the more recent discussions around the climate crisis. Environmental justice has been more centered um, in things like um, infrastructure. You know, where do we locate those roads and bridges and how are those railways and roads dividing uh, and segregating communities? And those are all issues that are environmental justice and yet we're hearing them woven in to the mainstream conversation. And this administration, I mean, President Biden has made sure that in each one of the agencies, um, in each one of the departments, that environmental justice has a place in, the, in those departments and um, has its own you know, sort of coordinating mechanism in the White House. That is a, that is a, a first to have this woven really throughout the federal government. And now we need to make sure that those resources really do go to the communities um, to, and to communities of color where the need is. Let me ask you a question. Actually, were you, were, were you in office in Congress when Freddie Gray was killed? I, I'm just trying, I don't know the time. Yeah, I was. Okay. Yeah. So you remember so that uprising in Baltimore and you remember the, the killing of Freddie Gray? And also the people, many people now connect the dots with lead poisoning in regards to Freddie Gray. Um, and he actually had won a lawsuit earlier about lead poisoning. And then later on, obviously, he was killed by police brutality. I bring that up because, you know, you, I want to get to this, the mainstream environmental movement. But then this, this one is really for people of color and particularly black people. When we talk about justice for us, as you were mentioning it, how do we break down these silos that these other groups want to put, but they don't really, we, we don't live in a silo life. So we're dealing with poverty, the pandemic, brutality, pollution. Um, we're dealing with all those things. Freddie Gray is a good example that we're also dealing with racial justice and climate justice at the same time. How do we break down those silos within our environmental movement, but more importantly for us as black people? when we're dying like that, we're dying from so many different things. How do we really, you know, fight for justice in this system that we're talking about? Well, I mean, you know, Rev, you know that, I mean, I've spent a lot of my time inside the mainstream environmental organizations. And that was intentional um, because I felt that somebody needed to be around the table when these conversations were taking place. And somebody like me, from my background, my experience, um, and as a Black woman, needed to be centered in that, in, around those tables, because otherwise our voices are just, you know, not present in those rooms. But there's still not enough uh, people of color around those tables. Um, and, you know, and, and I do think that we are in this unique moment where because issues concerning uh, communities of color, and I think particularly as elevated by the um, Black Lives Matter movements um, around the country, that that has given an opportunity to raise the profile of Black leadership um, around the country in these movements. And, you know, I have challenged um, organizations both as a philanthropist and, um, and in my, um, you know, sort of work on boards, challenge them, you know, if you're gonna say that you work on issues of environmental justice, I wanna see what your staff looks like. I wanna know what your board uh, looks like. I wanna know where you're spending money because, it's, you know, it can't be enough just to take credit for the work without doing the work. Hmm. And, um, and so I think that we just have to continue to push in terms of our own leadership um, in those organizations and raising the profile of our own organizations that are working on these, on these issues. I mean, my, uh, my good friend, um, Secretary Marsha Fudge over in housing is she is really um, elevating these issues of justice um, in housing. 
how we develop housing, where it's developed, who's in charge of that, who's getting the, you know, the money from, uh, from those, those developments. Those all have to do with how you're raising and lifting up leadership. So um, I just, you know, look, these fights are never over. They just aren't. Mm. I mean, you know, I feel like I'm 63 years old now. And every once in a while, I get this hankering to just, you know, retire someplace and say, you know, that next generation, it's time for them to take over. And then something pisses me off. And it reminds me that I still have to be in the fight. So, you know, I and I think, you know, for young people, I know that it can get really discouraging, but um, this this is their world. You know, they're in charge of it. And, you know, and they can't wait to be tapped for leadership. They have to tap themselves. Let me actually talk about, well, let me just make a side note. Cause I know folks are listening and they can't see you in this process. But for those who, who <laughs> can't see uh, former Congresswoman Donna Edwards here, she looks fantastic. You know, she, she definitely comes in the, in the generation of uh, black don't crack. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I just want to just make sure that if you're if you're listening to her, I know she sounds great, but obviously she looks great as well, which is always a great thing. That's just amazing for all of our our leaders to who go through so much and they still looking vibrant in that process. That's a, that's a side note. I just want to tell you that, Congressman, that Thank that's you. that's just that's important to folk to hear who are listening. They need to understand and see that, hear that what I'm seeing. Um, let me ask you this part to what we just talked about, about the mainstream environmental movement. Um, you were in, obviously, philanthropy for some time. Um, and so you were an instrumental in funding many, many groups. There was a report that just came out that showed that literally no money, to be honest. It was literally no money. It was literally, it was no money. Going to people of color-led um EJ organizations. And we know how much money is in the environmental movement. This is no, this is no, this is, this is not slim picking. This is, this is, there's some real resources going on. How do we fix that? How do I, and I, I agree with you. I, I, I sit on uh, uh green 2.0 board. And so I, I'm in that process. We sit on boards together and with mainstream organizations and we, you know, we have this conversation all the time, but honestly, they have to make some huge transitions, huge transitions to get to where they are right now, to being a more diverse institutions across the board. Some are doing it, some are not. I actually feel that's actually going to delay what needs to happen in the climate crisis. How do we hold philanthropy accountable? The donors of color are forcing folks to take a pledge, I mean, I think to, to that 30% of their funding should go to people of color-led organizations. Uh, I think three of them, you know, were, were, were doing better um, in that process. I think the Barr Foundation, JPB Foundation, the Hewlett Foundations, I think were on the list of doing better. But this was, a, this, was, this was far cry from what it needs to be done. How do we fix that? And how do we also fix those, these institutions that need to believe they need to transition first and foremost? They need to trust people of color in these positions. How does that happen at this moment? Well, I mean, I look, I think there are a couple of tracks. One is that, you know, I mean, we have to look at the genesis of the mainstream environmental movement and where it started um, and the money that funded it was destined to you know, to fund the environment in a way that did not touch communities of color. And if you look at who is in philanthropy, um, you know, I would say, you know, especially looking at the heads of, you know, the senior leadership of, um, of foundations and even individual donors, they are largely white people. Mm. And so, um, I mean, it's not a shock that money hasn't 
gone to um, black led um, or people of color led uh, environmental organizations. Um, how to change that? I know one of the things that, I, and I, I do some advising of philanthropy now, and I think one of the things that I'm doing is really going on a hunt, searching for organizations that in states that, um, you know, make a difference to the, um, the foundations that I'm advising and where they are, you know, sort of most interested, but funding those organizations directly and not going through conduits hmm. to do it, not using um, the mainstream organizations to then regrant um, because that regranting is really not happening. Uh, and I think the other thing that philanthropy can do is to, you know, when, when, when we're funding mainstream organizations and they say they're working with or supporting uh, local organizations, that we hold, hold them to account for that. And, you know, with the money that we give, you know, if you, if, I mean, you know, a, a donor could say, well, if I'm giving $250,000 to this organization, I want them to spend 30% of that regranting to um, local EJ organizations. I mean, those are things that philanthropy can do. Um, and, you know, sometimes philanthropy also can be lazy mm. uh, in the sense that, um, you know, they don't go out there and search for uh, for organizations to, to fund them. They'll say, well, I don't really know any organizations to fund. Well, that's just garbage. Um, there are ways that you can find organizations that fall, you know, that fit within your guidelines uh, of support. And so those are accountability mechanisms that we can start using that that EJ organizations and allies can start using to place more demands on philanthropy. And I I would say we also need to have a more unified um, a set of donors of color who are supporting the EJ movement. And there is not that. Mm. Um, you know, and, and there is money out there. I mean, this notion that, you know, there is not, a, you know, sort of black philanthropic money is ridiculous. I mean, it is there, and but it's not unified. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think those are some of the, you know, some of the challenges, but, um, you know, that the report was just damning because the, you know, the echo chamber suggests that philanthropy is doing a lot, much more than what it in fact is doing. Let's look to the future. Um, how are your efforts, uh, my dear sister, doing the work to ensure that there are black people in the future? Uh, in philanthropy? Just in general, right oh, now. Just, we're, we're, this, this, yeah. this is you using all of your all of your experiences, even now from media, philanthropy, uh, politics, activism. You know, where, where are you now in this process? Um, you know, I've, I've always been about trying to grow a next generation um, and thinking that, you know, I was the first black woman elected to Congress from Maryland. Um, when that happened, I was surprised about that because I thought, how can a state that, you know, was the home to Harriet Tubman and where Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass were, how could that be true? Um, but it was true in this little, you know, some people call it a southern state of Maryland. And um, but I never thought that I should be, you know, the last woman. And I think after my election, I think because of the way it happened, 
there were so many more women and young women who just decided to run for every kind of political office that you can imagine um, in the state. And, you know, so there's that. Uh, I also have been, you know, trying to focus on how to, you know, sort of mentor particularly Black women in philanthropy. Um, because I think that grant making looks different when you have different people doing the grant making. Um, and so we have to grow that. We have to grow that. And then continuing to use my voice. I mean, I, I write a column for the Washington Post and, um, and I'm um, a contributing analyst for political analyst for NBC and MSNBC. And I decided when I came out of Congress that I was no longer constrained by being in the leadership of the House anymore. And so I could just say whatever I want, um, challenge whomever I want, and advocate for what I want. And I've used my progressive voice um, to do that, and I'll continue um, to do that. But even in television, we need you know, more people of color in those roles on, you know, on TV. And we just don't quite have that yet because it changes, you know, who's around the table, you know, this Rev, who's around the table changes the conversation. It just does, you know, whether you're aiming for that or not, it changes the conversation and, um, you know, and different issues are brought into the, into the forefront because people bring a different set of experiences. And I think that's what we've been able to see with this new generation, you know, coming into political leadership. But, you know, we we still have miles to go. Think about, you know, the fact that we really don't we've never had a black woman governor hmm. of any state in this country. Um, you know, there are so many elective offices out there that can be filled by talented people. And, you know, we need to step up to the plate to do that. And not just, you know, and I, I get, um, you know, saddened by this notion of people, you know, thinking that, you know, holding elective office or being in politics is kind of a waste um, because it's not. We need people inside and we need them outside. And that's how you make real change. Sister Dunn, I just have one more question for you. Um, and it kind of is in the spirit of the question and the answer you just gave. And that is this. I, I really want you to speak to particularly this this response. No offense to anybody who's listening. You can glean from it, I'm sure. But this one, really, I want you to speak to black women. I want you to speak directly to them right now. And I want you to speak to them from the standpoint that what we're seeing also with like Simone Biles and many others and just the, the toll upon mental health or what it means to be a black woman. The toll right now of just, of we're seeing just a fighting that we're seeing from Latasha Brown in Georgia to many others across the, the, the nation and voting rights. What we're seeing with, Tamika Mallory fighting and down there with Breonna Taylor. We're seeing there's so many young women out there. Um, they look at you, and obviously I've known you for quite some time, so I know both, I know a good bit of your story. But they may look at you now and be like, you know, Councilman Donna, I hear you, but you look like you never had a problem in the world. <laughs> huh. <laughs> no. It looks so easy. You sound so articulate. You sound so wise. I, I don't know if I can make it. Would you talk to those women right now? Thanks for asking that, because I think one of the things that, you know, when you, when you hear about the Black women that you've just described, I think one of the things that's true about Black women is that we can sometimes make what is very hard look easy. And the reason is because it, these are not the first struggles that we've faced, um, but it's not easy. Um, it, you know, and I, 
I told you I'm 63. I look back over the course of my adult life in particular. And, you know, I see my son now. He's just getting ready to turn 33. I can't even believe I'm saying that. And um, I remember when he was, you know, three, five, seven years old, how I struggled just to put food on the table and to keep a roof over our head. And that, that has never left me. I remember, um, you know, getting to the end of the week, having to pay daycare and realizing that I'd been stuck in traffic uh, and late picking him up for one or two days. And that added, you know, an extra $18 every time. And 18 may not sound like, you know, a lot of a difference, but when you don't have $18, you don't have $18. Um, or supplementing um, our, you know, sort of weekly grocery shopping by going to the local food pantry. And that part of me has never left me. It is what makes me continue to fight because it's not like it's my struggle today but I know that it is some black woman's struggle out there. Um, and so, you know, I would just say all, all of us have a story. I mean, there's not a one of us that has a story. You know, I tell people all the time, I, I used to share this story when I was uh, campaigning. I actually paid off, I had about $100,000 in student loans from the time I finished undergraduate school to um, to law school. And I paid my last student loan check. I wrote it the morning of the day that I was elected in that or won that primary race back in 2008. Um, and when I, you know, so today when I hear about, um, trying to wipe out student debt because of the burden that places on young people, the burden of not being able to, you know, afford a home and to get on with your life after college and to make a contribution. Um, some people say, well, why should, why should, um, you know, why should we wipe out their student debt? We're in a generation we had to pay our student debt. I don't think about it like that at all. I think, oh my God, please wipe out their debt because I know what it was like to struggle to pay that student loan. Hmm. And so all of those things and those experiences Rev, are a foundation for my progressive politics, all of them, and they never go away. Um, and, you know, so when I saw Cori Bush sitting out on the steps of the Capitol, I thought, I thought, gosh, that would, that would have been me being evicted had it not been for Cori Bush and her willingness to sit on the steps of the Capitol. And, um, you know, so I think the, the young women who are coming up now, I'm so just amazed by them and proud of them and, you know, what they've been able to achieve. And I know that there's so much more. Um, it, because, you know, when black women fight for something, it ends up benefiting everyone else, everyone else, um, because our struggle is the human struggle. Our struggle as black women is the human struggle. And so when we win, everyone else wins too. Uh, and these women are at the forefront of that. And you know, um, these, you know, Rev, after I was my last term in Congress, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And um, and I remember the last time I really could march in a protest was with um, Black Lives Matter protesters who went to the Capitol. And I decided that I wasn't going to stand on the steps and talk to them that I was going to walk with them. And I walked down Pennsylvania Avenue 
And it was the last time I really could walk um, like that. But I wanted to be there with those young people because their fight was my fight too. So, you know, we, we just have to, you know, it's never going to be over and that's okay. And we just pick up the mantle from one generation to the next generation uh, to continue the fight. And we get wins along the way. Um, But, you know, we're fighting for our communities and our families. There can't be an end to that. Please tell us how we can keep up with your work and how we can support you. Well, these days, I have to tell you, I gave up Facebook uh, because I was just so frustrated with the hate. Um, but I'm still on Twitter at Donna F. Edwards. And um, when people, you know, write me, they DM me, they, you know, tweet at me, I usually try to respond to them. Uh, and you can catch me on um, NBC and MSNBC. In fact, I'll be on Meet the Press this Sunday, uh, the coming uh, Sunday, um, August 8th, I think it is. And um you know, and if, if they're not following me, I'm following all of them. So, <laughs> Amen. And that's our guest today. She is former Congressman Donna Edwards. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Thank you, my sister. Thank you. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know.